continue. study of this little book, which is, in my opinion, fitting for our day and time. Of course, all the Bible is relevant. Um, Saul is up to date as today's newspaper, and a lot more truthful, I might say. <clears throat> anyway, Jude, let's read the first, four ver or first three verses, where it says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered under the saints. I want to look tonight particularly at verse 3 as we consider contending for our common salvation. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity that we have to meet together here tonight. And I pray, Father, as we look into the Word of God, that we'd be encouraged and challenged and, and uh, that our faith would be increased. And uh, Lord, that we'd uh, learn and grow in our grace and knowledge of Thee. Father, we pray for a prayer time as well, that it will glorify and honor you as we bring our petitions before you. Thank you for the privilege we have. So just encourage your people tonight, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, things that you hear a lot about today is, let's not cause any controversy. Um... <clears throat> But Jude tells us, and we ought not to stir up controversy just to have the controversy. <laughs> That's not the purpose. But, but at the same time, we are to earnestly contend for our common salvation. Now, I want to look at for several things we consider this tonight. First of all, our common salvation, you know, the word common sometimes refers to something that's in other words, it's ordinary, it's not important, it's not, not anything significant about it. But here the word means Shared by all. So, you know, it's kind of common to everybody. Of course, our common salvation, as Jude uh, uh, mentions, he just mentions this really in passage, passing, because he intended to write about it, but then decided not to, was the Lord not to. But as you think about the common salvation, three things about that. First of all, it meets a common need. It is common that it meets a common need. You know, Romans 3.10 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one sin, man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so that death hath passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Ecclesiastes 7.20, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good, and sinneth not. So it meets a common need, and that is to pay the penalty for our sin. Uh, it is, there is a common Savior. <clears throat> John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Um, there's only one Savior of mankind. I was talking to a Catholic lady last night, and I quoted that verse several times, and I said, that sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? See, there's only one way to God, not many. 
Uh, of course, there's many verses that teach that. Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 6, 23, for the wage of sin is death, but to get to God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Galatians three twenty six is one I really like. We are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We're not all the children of God. We're all the children of God by faith in Christ. No such thing as the brotherhood of God, or the uh, fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man, as the liberals like to teach. No, we're not all the children of God. We're all the offspring of God. We're not all the children of God. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we have a common need, we have a common Savior, and a common way to be saved. You know, I really don't care who you are. It doesn't really matter who you are. You get saved. We all get saved the same way. Now, we may have different feelings when we get saved. Some are emotional, some are not. But we all get saved the same way. Jesus said, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. And when he was leaving his disciples, you know, when he gave them the Great Commission in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, he told them that repentance and remission of sin was to be preached in his name throughout all the earth. Um, and, of course, Peter still tells us that, that uh, God's not willing that any should, should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there must be repentance and faith in Christ. You know, Paul made it very plain in Acts 20, 21, that repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a, you know, everybody gets saved the same way. They repent and believe the gospel. So, so we have a common salvation. It's shared by all. But, but as we think, consider this verse in particular here, he, he says that we need to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, one commentator made this point. The first word in verse 3 is what? Beloved. The last word is saints. Beloved saints. How are we supposed to be known? What did Jesus say was the, a new commandment and how we are supposed to be known? By our love, right? But he says here, beloved, you that are known by your love, you, you saints, you know, he gave diligence. And I want you to notice three other words. There's three other words here. Diligence and then earnestly contend. Um, of course, diligence speaks of there's desperate... Uh, uh, need for, for required action. Diligence. You need to give special attention to this and you need to act upon it. And, and one commentator said this, this, quote, so great was the need that their life-giving salvation stood in jeopardy, therefore his plea earnestly contend. Uh, speaks of an agonizing, vicious struggle to stand against man-made belief systems, unquote. So there needs to be an agonizing, vigorous struggle against man-made belief systems. And, and we are to do that. In Peter's epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, he says, But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer. 
to every man that asks you, the reason of the hope is in you with meekness and fear. So we need to be ready at any time to give an answer concerning the truth of God's word. Uh, so, so we are to earnestly contend for the, for the faith. Uh, this implies three things. First of all, that in opposition to infidels, we exhibit the evidence of the authenticity of the scriptures. In other words, the scriptures are real. They are life-giving. We're to give evidence to that. We're to exhibit that. That's what Paul said. Remember when he wrote the, the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and he said that ye are our epistle, known and read of all men. In other words, they were living witnesses to the fact that what the Paul had preached, what the scriptures say, is true. It had transformed their lives. Romans 12.1 says to, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present. And the word present there has the idea of exhibit to view. So we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead one, but a living sacrifice, one that's active. In other words, we're to, our bodies to be to exhibit the evidence that what the scripture says is true. It's authentic. It's real. You see, the Christian life is a living, breathing, life-changing life. It's not something you just add on to and then just live like you always did. So, so it implies that we exhibit the evidence of the authenticity of the Scripture. Secondly, that we maintain that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, again, Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen: All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture. You know, there's a lot of people that like to pick and choose. You know, they're sort of like going to the golden crowd and get a smorgasbord so you can just go up and get what you want and leave the rest. You know, you don't, they don't give you a menu and say you have, you know, this choice, and along with this choice comes this, this, and this. You know, and there may be a few choices, but you're limited to your choices, so you have to take sort of what they offer. You know, at a smorgasbord, you can just take what you want and get the rest. You know, you can go over to the dessert bar and get cake and ice cream and, you know, all those sprinkles and stuff on it or a piece of pie, and you can forget about it. All that salad stuff that's good for you, you know. Uh, no, no, when, but when you go to a restaurant, sit down, you don't have those choices. No, we don't have that choice either. All scripture is given by express God and is profitable. That means the Old Testament as well as the New. You know, there were some that would try to tell us, I heard God say one time, that you know, we don't need the Old Testament. Well, yes, we do. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, and the word, word words is plural there, meaning every word, my words shall not pass away. So we must maintain that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We've got to tend for, contend for that. Thirdly, that we need to contend that and allow the scriptures to speak for themselves and not interpret them through our own preconceived ideas or opinions. Uh, in Second Peter, 
chapter 1, verse 19, Peter said, you know, and he was in that, in that chapter 1, he's talking, he, he's, he's talking there about how he was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ. And he's talking, referring there to the transfiguration where he and uh, John and Peter and went with the Lord up on the mountain, you know, and of course he was transfigured before him. And, and what a great experience that was. But he said, I have something more sure than that, that you do well do you give heed to. And that is that the scriptures for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy man of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And then in that same book, in chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about resting the scriptures. In, in Second uh, Peter three sixteen, it says, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, it's talking there, referring to there to Paul, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. In other words, they twist them or they pervert them as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. So there were many, even in that day, that were twisting or, or, or uh, perverting the scriptures and making them fit their own ideas or misinterpreting them. You know, if your interpretation of one passage contradicts another passage, your interpretation's wrong. It's wrong. So we must let the scriptures speak for themselves and conform ourselves to them and not them to us. Well, some would say, well, you Bible-believing Baptists are just kind of narrow. You need to be more broad-minded. Well, we need to be broad in our love for the lost. I agree with that. We need to be broad in our vision to reach the world. I agree with that. But truth is narrow. Mathematical truth is narrow. When I was in school, 3 plus 3 was 6. What was it when you went to school? Why hasn't math progressed? You see, truth doesn't change. Even mathematical truth does not change. Scientific truth is narrow. When I was in school, water froze at 32 degrees. What about you, Ryan? What do they tell you water freezes now? It evaporates. Yeah, it evaporates too. But water still freezes at 32. That does not change. Historical truth is narrow. D-Day was June 6, 1944. Now, you can go ahead and say it's December 6 if you want to, but it's not true. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. You see, historical truth is narrow. It does not change. I mean... Sure, I'd like to have a July 4th and, you know, October when it's cooler. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I can't put July in October. Why is it that we want to change other truth? I mean, the whole world tells us that truth does not change. It is narrow. One commentator said this, truth, quote, 
truth is by its very nature intolerant and exclusive, unquote. That's why Proverbs 23, 23 says, buy the truth and sell it not. Now, now, there are some reasons why one might wish to avoid controversy. You know, some might say, well, I'm, I'm just not like, I'm not that sort. I'm not like that. You know, Joel Osteen says, that's not my lane. I don't know what lane he has. It's not my lane. You know. Someone will say, well, let's just preach the gospel and leave it there. Is that what Jesus told us? No. Some will say it doesn't do any good and might turn people away. Others say, well, it's not loving, and I might be misunderstood. Well, those are all possibilities, I guess. And, and the, you know, this last one is probably the biggest reason. It's unpopular. But you know the thing that I find funny is the people that say they're not narrow are most often the most controversial. They just think they're not. And their liberal friends think they're not. But let me give you three, three biblical reasons why we must contend earnestly for the faith. Number one, God's word demands it. God's word demands it. Right here in, in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend with the faith which was once delivered unto the, saint, unto the saints. So God's words demand it. You, go th- you read through the entire Bible. Everywhere, the prophets were told to earnestly contend with the faith, to denounce error, to denounce wickedness. Isaiah was told to cry aloud, lift up your voice. Uh, Jeremiah was told, fear them not. I made thee a brazen wall. You know, uh, they engaged in controversy. Paul, John, you know, James, all of the, you know, John is known as the, the, uh, the apostle of love. But what are his epistles about? Truth. In fact, it was John that said, if any come unto you and bring not the doctrine Um, or whosoever transgresseth, Second John, John verse nine. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God, and he abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. He hath both both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, in other words, the doctrine that Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't encourage him in it. Now, when he says don't invite him in your house, then he's talking about church. Don't allow him into your house. Don't allow him to spread the doctrine. That was the apostle of love. No, he said you are content. Uh, so all, all, the, all the disciples, they are earnestly content. So God's word demands it. Secondly, the situation in, quote, Christianity demands it. You know, is it well in religious circles? You know, we must raise our voices in the air. You know, are we to allow the flock of Christ to be poisoned with weeds? Or do uh, Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> you know, one of the jobs of a shepherd 
uh, in his book, Philip Keller, in, in his uh, book on Psalm 23, says that he's talking there about the shepherd leading, leading him in green pastures and so on and, and, and through the deep valleys. And, and he said, you know, a lot of typology there is to a shepherd who, who goes and, 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 and looks over the field or the pasture before he puts his sheep into it and removes any poisonous weeds. And he also inspects his sheep if there's parasites. How many of you look at your dogs every once in a while and see if there's a parasite called a tick on it? What are you doing? You're removing something that is hurt, can be harmful to the dog. And the, 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 the shepherd would do the same thing. And, of course, the application is a, 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 one of God's shepherd or pastor is going to warn his people about poison in the religious world. Uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse uh, 26 says, Wherefore I take your record this day that I'm pure from the blood of all men. Paul here speaking to the Ephesian elders. For I have not to shun, shun to declare unto you all the counts of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. So an overseer is kind of one who watches over. To feed the church of God which is purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember, but by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of night and day with tears. So he's, you know, he's, he's telling him, look, you need, to, you need to watch over your flock because there's going to be grievous wolves that are going to try to enter in. You know what a wolf does? It just kills its prey, just decimates it, and leaves it. And so, so, the, so the situation in Christianity demands it. We must warn of those who teaching error and raise our voices against it. Thirdly, the love for the souls of men demands it. You know, we are to love souls. But how do we how how well do we love them and don't want to, you know, do we really love them when we don't want to offend or raise a controversy to allow people to be led astray by false shepherds? Is that loving? Just the last night of visitation, Daniel and I had a little lengthy discussion with a Catholic lady, and she told us this big, long story about how good she was. And all the service that she's done for the Catholic Church, she even has awards that have been given to her because of her volunteer service. And I thought, how sad. And then we got into this discussion about how, you know, she started talking. She, she was like just talking and talking and talking, and I let her talk. And she talked about how, you know, she worked with Jews and how good some of them, how nice they were, and they gave a lot of money. And I asked her, I said, can Judaism be true, a true religion, when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, I know, but that was a mob thing. And, and then Romans had part in that too. And I said, well, really? It was all of us that put him on the cross. But the Jews as a nation rejected him. It was only a minority. The apostles and a few others in the whole nation that accepted him. And I said, it's still true. There's only a minority that adhered to the truth. And then she said this. So do you think our Catholics false too? And so I asked her. I said, I was at a Catholic funeral. And the priest put that lady into heaven three different ways. None of them was. What I just quoted you, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So can Catholicism be the truth? I said, you need to think about it. Because it could be the difference between heaven or hell. You see... It's not loving to let people go on. Did I raise a controversy? Oh, yeah, I did. I raised a controversy. You know, Jesus raised controversy many times when he confronted people about their false ideas. He raised a controversy with the, those, the, the Samaritan woman, although she came to accept the truth. He raised a controversy with the rich young ruler, and he rejected it. But he raised it. In other words, he contended for the faith. You know, we can do that without being contentious, but we do need to contend for the faith. And so, Jude tells us we need to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, we need to also contend against our own flesh. You know, Galatians 5, you know, not only contend against the false ideas in the world, but, but against against our own flesh that works against us and is not for us. In Galatians 5, 16 and 17, the Bible says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not on the law. So, so you have the flesh lusts, or desires to go against the Spirit of God. And so we have to contend also against our flesh. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 7 talked about the struggle that he had within me, and, and it finally came to the conclusion, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, the things I would, that do I not. And the things I would not, that I do. What is that? That's the flesh struggling against the Spirit. So we need to contend We need to reckon the old man dead. And, of course, we need to contend against the world. John tells us that apostle of love in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes are the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God the will of the Father abide, will of God abideth forever. I'm sorry. Uh, so, so we have to contend against the world. And of course, behind all this, of course, is our great adversary, the, the devil. We have to contend against him. First Peter five eight says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." 
So, yes, we need to. And again, the word earnestly means to struggle. It's a vigorous struggle. It requires vigilance. You know, I've watched these guys on Monday nights sometimes downstairs at our house wrestling, you know, doing their mixed martial arts. And, you know, and I don't see them just standing there kind of looking at each other like this, you know. You know, they're... It's called vigilance. They're watching. They're watching every move of their opponent. They're watching his eyes to see where he's going to go. Next. See, that's called vigilance. That's earnestly contending. And when they do get down on the mat, there's a lot of moaning and groaning <laughs> and struggling and sweat and smell. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, what are they doing? They're earnestly contending. And that's the idea here. We need to earnestly contend for the faith. And this faith, notice it says this faith once delivered unto the saints. The word faith refers to his uh, body of teaching found in the scriptures centering in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. His birth, his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his coming again, and the efficacy of his blood or the capacity to produce the desired result. That's what efficacy means. So, so we are to contend for the faith once delivered. You know, we have a faith, a body of teaching found in the scripture that does not change. God, God does not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Now, the Old Testament tells us that God is a man of war. What's war? It's a contention. That's what it is. It's a struggle. And God is a man of war. God is at war with the enemy. And Jesus Christ is a Jehovah of the Old Testament. When, when uh, Joshua met the captain of the Lord's host, guess who it was? It was Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave him instructions how to conquer Jericho. And he said, I'm the captain of the Lord's host. You know, some people have this idea that the God of the New Testament's a pacifist. It's not so. The only reason he allowed himself to be crucified was because he came to die for the sins of mankind. When he comes again, there'll be no dying on his part. There'll be judgment, and there will be war and judgment. 
Um, God's, God's word does not change. Now, now, we as Christian people are not to be promoting war. But there's nothing wrong with defending yourselves. You know, Baptist people throughout history have never been ones to just take up arms and conquer other people. They, they've never spread the gospel through the force of the sword. They have never spilled the blood of their enemies. That's not how we're supposed to do it. But God does not forbid us from defending ourselves. In fact, the Waldensians fought, defended themselves in 30 wars in 200 years. They defended themselves in their homeland. Uh, so, but God does not change. God's word does not change. You know, he's still the virgin born, uh, lived a sinless life, was crucified, rose again the third day, and so on and so forth. God, God does not change. Secondly, God's word does not change. We have a living book. And, of course, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says this, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. So the word of God is incorruptible. If something is incorruptible, that means it cannot, is not susceptible to decay. Everything we... Everything we see in the world is, is susceptible to decay. You know, some things more than others. You know, glass is something that is not as susceptible to decay. You know, you can, it's very hard unless you melt it or something like that. But, you know, you can wipe grease on glass and clean it off. If you wipe grease on my pants, they're work pants. Um... You know, so, so there's a lot of things that are more set up with decay than others. But, but the Bible says here that God's word is incorruptible. It will abide and it will endure forever. It's a miracle book. God promised to preserve his word. He uses his churches to do it. God's salvation doesn't. Of course, we already mentioned this, but God's salvation does not change. Hebrews 10 10 through 14 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered for one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So God's salvation, Christ perfected our salvation forever. It does not change. From, by the way, from Old Testament to New. The only difference between the Old Testament and New is they look forward to it and we look back. When a Jew, when a Bible-believing Jew brought an offering. What he was saying is, one day there will come the Lamb of God will take away my sin. This only covers it for now. You know, there are some who teach that they got saved by works in the Old Testament, but Romans 4 clearly says that, that Abraham was saved by faith and not by works. God provided himself a lamb, is what 
Abraham told Isaac. You remember that in Genesis chapter 22, verse, I think it's verse 8? God will provide himself a land. And when, 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 when Abraham raised that knife to, to slay Isaac and the Lord called him out of the bush and, and he looked, uh, uh, called to him out of, the, out of, the, uh, uh, out of heaven and, 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 uh, and he looked and there was a ram caught in a the thicket. There he was, what God provided in the place of Isaac. Of course, that ram speaks of Christ, who will one day come away, come and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So God's salvation does not change. God's view of sin does not change. You know, we live in a day when the way people look at, of course, we've changed our uh, society has changed its uh, authority. We don't have an authority anymore. But they, the way they look at sin, now it's a disease. Um, the sodomites can't help it. They're born that way. Alcoholism is a disease. You don't get a disease by choice. And people that take up drinking choose to. People that take up smoking choose to. People that take drugs, choose to. People that commit adultery, choose to. It's not a, it's not a disease. It's not an order of lifestyle. It's a choice. And, and God still views it like he always has. The Ten Commandments are still God's view, basic view of God's view of sin. Uh, and so he told us, tells us to earnestly contend for the faith, and he says, uh, um, that was given unto the saints. Notice it says at the end of that verse, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. There's only one faith and it's been delivered to us, the saints, to keep it. We have been given a charge by the Lord to keep the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the Bible says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou hast behaved thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So God has given it to his churches to keep the faith. They're the guardians they're the guardians of the scriptures. We're to keep his word. And God has used his churches. You know, some people will say, some people will tell you, of course, this is you know, part of the rewriting of history we learned about last week, but some people will tell you that true Christianity was lost during the Dark Ages, and then it was brought out again in the Reformation. Not true. True Christianity wasn't brought out in the Reformation. A corrupted one was. A compromised one was. No. True Christianity was kept by people like the Waldensians, the Albigensians, and John Clark, and Obadiah Holmes, and Shubal Stearns. See, true Christianity was always had a witness in the earth. It just wasn't out in the forefront always. Many times it's underground. You know, in Russia, communist Russia. Well, m maybe I should have called the U 
the USSR, before the Iron Curtain came down, there was a witness in Russia to the truth. There were Baptist churches underground that met in the wilderness, in the woods, just like there still are in China. And there's even some in North Korea. You see, true Christianity will never be completely extinguished. There will always be a remnant, just as there always was a remnant of the Jewish people that were true to the Lord. So God has given us a charge, given us a charge to keep the faith. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul, writing to young Timothy, says, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, before Pontius and, and, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Um, and then chapter 4, verse 7 again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And of course, the instruction is for us to keep the faith as well. So, but if we're going to keep that faith, we've got to contend for it. It won't be kept by us being complacent or, as some say, loving. And again, it's not loving to let error make inroads in your own life and in the lives of others without endeavoring to show them the truth of the word of God. That they might have light and life more going. So might God help us to earnestly contend for the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time in your word tonight. Thank you for the challenge it gives us. And Lord, I pray you help us just to be faithful uh, in this time in which we're living. To be faithful to your word. To keep it. To guard it to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.